Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Day to you guys out there. Hope you're wearing your green. Uh, we are celebrating over here, uh, drinking a little bit of cherry coke and uh, 
watching some March Madness and eating some corn nuts. So uh, it was bound to be a good night. Hope you guys are doing well. Glad everybody could uh, join us tonight and uh, have a good show lined up for you. And we are going to be continuing our series. We're going to wrap uh, wrap it up in part three of our uh, discussion on the battle of the world views. Real quick before we uh, bring in on our guests and, and get to that, um, if you have not liked us on Facebook, friends, you need to do that. You need to go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. And what you'll see when you go to this page is you will you will see about four years uh, worth of shows we have done. And those maybe just listening for the first time, maybe not uh, real familiar with our show and what we do, we focus on theology and apologetic issues. <clears throat> and as the show says, folks, theology matters. We believe theology matters greatly, uh, and it matters really eternally. Um, it is uh, literally uh, life or death sometimes. And so we have devoted numerous shows to discussing issues such as uh, how to answer the Mormon when the Mormon comes to your door or the Jehovah's Witness, how to answer their questions about the doctrine of the Trinity, um, Christology, the inerrancy, the authority of the Bible. Um, we have done debates, actually, with uh, with a Mormon apologist. You can find that <clears throat> on our show. We have uh, looked at the issue of Roman Catholicism, where we dedicate the month of October to the Protestant Reformation. A lot of apologists don't want to get in that debate. They don't want to touch that. Uh, but we here at Theology Matters thinks uh, it's an issue that's worth looking into and and answering some of the objections that come from um, topics such as sola scriptura, justification by faith alone, these things that we believe are the heartbeat um, of uh, the Protestant faith, and certainly um, some of these things are central to the Christian faith. So you can find numerous shows and debates that we have done uh, with Roman Catholic apologists, and and, uh, they are our, our friends. We certainly have no ill will or animosity, but, uh, we, you know, we need to have these kind of discussions. We've done uh, a lot of shows on atheism, and I've actually had uh, several atheists on and hosted debates with them, including Matt Dillahoney from the Atheist Experience. We deal with topics of abortion. We do everything here. So uh, like the page, let your friends know, and follow us on Facebook to get our updates. So with that out of the way... Uh, I wanted to uh, bring you guys a good friend of mine, and let's see, I've known Daniel now for uh, probably a year or two, maybe, and Pastor Daniel Wells is uh, with Hill City Church. He's here in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and he's going to talk with us a little bit about the role of apologetics ministry and kind of just... Um, Give us his, uh, his testimony, how he came to know the Lord, etc. So, Daniel, are you there? I'm here. Thanks, brother, for having me on tonight. Oh, I really, really do appreciate you coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, uh, where you're from, etc. 
Well, the most important thing I can tell you right now is that I am so far 7-0 in my bracket today. And if I get distracted <laughs> during this interview, it's because Little Rock is about to beat Purdue. I don't want that to happen. So, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'll focus on you guys tonight. I made a commitment. Uh, so, uh, but, yeah, um, uh, I'm, the, I'm a church planter, pastor at Hill City Church which is a part of a very, very old denomination in America it's called the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. It's probably the coolest thing I can tell you about that church is that it is one of the fewest, it's one of the oldest denominations and also one of the few that's never had an, like a church or denomination split. So we've not wow. been liberal enough so that people, like conservatives, had to split, and we've not been so, uh, just so pesky with our theology, so uptight with it. We've had to split off, you know. Um, the cool thing is, kind of, looking like the Southern Baptists, you know, where we had the ordination, things like that. But um, even though we were flirting with liberalism, we actually came back towards a more orthodox, conservative view on things like scripture and whatnot. So that's kind of rare, as you know, um, yeah. in the history of denominations. So it's just really cool. Small denomination, mainly in the Southeast, but we have pastors like Sinclair Ferguson and Derek Thomas and Jay Adams some well-known guys in our denomination. That's really cool. Um, I have a wife, uh, uh, lovely wife, Ashley. been married for almost six years now. We have three children, uh, two biological, uh, Ralphie, who is four, and Simon, who's two and a half. And then we are uh, adopted parents of a 15-year-old uh, daughter named Grace. And so uh, we've been in Rockville for about four years now, helping with this church, and we're about to actually officially organize the church and leave church plant status in a couple of weeks, so that's really exciting. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I forget. What else did you want me to talk about? Uh, who I am, my church, family. What's the next thing? Yeah, I sorry, think you, I forgot. You, think you, think, no, no, I think you covered it. You are a little bit. Uh, you kind of going in and out, so I'm not sure if you could in maybe speak into the speak into the phone a little bit. I don't know if it's maybe uh, yeah, a bad reception. I had, a, I, had, I had a little headphone things here, but if I need. To, because I thought I'll do that. Is that better or no? No. Yeah, that sounds a little better right there. All right. If yeah, if I yeah, go I out again, I'll just work. talk into my phone. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, that's, so yeah. yeah. Um, well, good. Uh, going to, so going you're, to repeat anything or okay? No, no. I think I think we pretty much got that. Um, so you're okay. with the ARP. Now you are you a student at RTS? Uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, or did you graduate already? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, I graduated um, in 2011 with my Master of Divinity, and I went back a year and a half ago because they started at RTS Charlotte, uh, Charlotte campus, uh, they started a Master's of the Arts in Christian Counseling Program, uh, which is a really good program. I've been praying for a while about getting a Master's in Counseling, so I love doing counseling. Um so I'm going to get that master's this year. Um, they're, they're affiliated with uh, groups like PCES and other biblical counseling organizations. So it's probably become a better pastor, but also uh, we started a, a biblical counseling ministry in Rock Hill just recently, and that's been a really exciting venture as well. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's, that is really good. I know that that's uh... – that is certainly uh, an area that pastors have to know well and have to be uh, ver- very well versed in. So, very cool, very cool. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of um, 
what do you see as the role of uh, kind of a, a maybe apologetics uh, for the pastors? You know, a lot of a lot of pastors don't really um, maybe necessarily do apologetics, or some have really don't even have much of a high view of apologetics. Where do you think apologetics fits in uh, to the pastoral <laughs> ministry? Um, I agree with my theological hero, Tim Keller, um, that apologetics is very essential, especially today in our more post-Christian culture. Uh, apologetics is very essential and important to local church ministry, pastoral ministry. Um, I took one apologetics class in seminary, um, which I think is good. I, they probably should have a couple of different classes in that and maybe infiltrate it in other uh, parts of the curriculum as well. I'm, I'm particularly blessed because I was a philosophy major at Erskine College. This is a Christian liberal arts college uh, in due west South Carolina, and so I took apologetics classes there. just did a lot of thinking and writing and reading and uh, philosophy of religion and philosophical theology. So my opinion is this. I got several layers of perspectives on this, so feel free to cut me off or ask them different questions, let me go a different route with it. I think that pastors uh, in the local church should have a basic foundational knowledge of apologetic issues. Uh, I think all pastors should know the traditional arguments for, for theism and God's existence, and obviously probably no better guys to read up on than like, you know, Wayne Lane Craig. I think we should know the basics of the evidences for the canon of Scripture, reliability of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus especially, the so reading guys like Gary Habermas and Nick Katona uh, and others are just really important. Uh, I think we should do, I think pastors should have a basic foundational knowledge and worldview apologetics. Um, right. Read the C.S. Lewis's and the Francis Schaeffer's. If you want to get into the presuppositional Ventilian stuff, that's really helpful stuff too. I like a lot of that as well. Uh, I think it's good no matter kind of what your particular persuasion is in apologetics, I think that baseline foundational knowledge of all those basic issues should be required. It's really important. Um, but saying that, I think uh, it's not going to be the practice that you're going to lay out in some hard-line precision and detail the Kalam cosmological argument like a William Lane Craig does. Um, right. You're probably not going to uh, have these debates against skeptics or a Mormon or like some like moderated debate or something. You're not going to be a James R. White, you know. You're probably not going to do that because you're not. You're probably not good enough to be debater, like professional <laughs> debaters, right? I'm certainly not. Um, right. But here's where I think, and, and, and just because you know all the book knowledge of apologetics, that does not mean you should not do the hard work of contextualization, which is. All right, where is God placing to be in ministry? What what's my context for ministry? What's the particular uh Tim Keller says, you know, what are the idols of the city in which you serve? You should love your city but also be aware of the idols, the heart idols of your city. Um that really difficult but necessary work of contextualization, you know, like Apostle Paul in Acts seventeen, he is walking there uh in Athens and he no, he learns about the idols of that city and uses that as a little springboard to have a dialogue with them about the gospel. Um, that should never be negated. I think it's, that's just as necessary as doing that kind of academic, 
textbook type work of learning apologetics and reading good stuff and looking at good stuff. Um, so I think both those things are necessary. And here's where it practically uh, shows itself in what I do. Um, when I preach on a Sunday morning, um, I don't do this every week, but I try to every week. I try to have at least one illustration or application point that is somehow related to apologetics. Um, and it usually takes a number of different forms, but it can do a couple things. First, if there are unbelievers or skeptics in my midst, which does happen a lot in our church, um, okay. Uh, if I know what some of their questions are and their issues are, that can help my preaching, and I can sort of, in a very smooth, non-obvious way, say something like, you know, if you're here today and you don't, you don't, you're not a believer in Jesus, perhaps this might be a question in your head as we read this text, and I can kind of do a two- or three-minute apologetic point. And that's not right. going to necessarily convert that person, but um, usually what I find out is that that leads to a coffee conversation with that person in a couple of weeks or so, right? And that's happened a lot. Right. Um, right. Sometimes, though, an apologetic point in a sermon can equip the Christian um, in, the, in the audience there on Sunday morning to do further reading or to be equipped to talk to their neighbors or a coworker about these issues, or they may say, hey, Pastor Daniel, can we have coffee and talk about the issue of how do we know which book which, which the Bible should be in the Bible? How do we uh, defend the existence of God? You mentioned that in a sermon Sunday. So I try to do that on purpose in my sermon almost every week, uh, try to hit different issues as they relate to the text because I think it's really important whether you have skeptics in your church uh, who attend or you have Christians in there, you need to be equipped in these issues. Uh, that's kind of one level of my ministry where apologetics kind of shines through. Um, another level, and this is kind of a cool ministry we have, uh, I know this is kind of a very common and sexy thing to do now in you know, church plants and in cool new churches, but we have this talk on tap thing in Rock Hill that I started uh, where I, I gather a bunch of Christians and non-Christians once a month on a Tuesday night. We go to a pub or a brewery and we just discuss a different topic, whether it's a political thing or a social, cultural thing or a theological, spiritual topic. Uh, we've discussed things like, you know, uh, can God condemn to hell people who've never heard the gospel? Or what about things like police brutality? Uh, or what about um, consumerism and materialism. So we've hit different topics, um, but I've discovered that my study, my love for apologetics, always just shines through and just comes out in those discussions um, where those are just, those are monthly apologetic moments where I have a few unbelievers in my midst where I can uh, speak the gospel into their lives in a practical way, and apologetics is a big part of that. Um, and then probably a final uh, way that this kind of shines through is just in my one-on-one ministry. Um, I've had several college students. We live in a, we're in a college town, went to the university down the street from us. Um, I've had several college students, some of them Christians, some non-Christians, say, hey, let's go do coffee at Amelie's. I was the big coffee shop right across the street from our church. And they'll say, can we talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality? Um and I have some little apologetic tactics that I use in those one-on-one conversations to help gain, a, uh, gain some ground in their lives on the Christian perspective. 
Um, but I'm really digging the one-on-one conversations. I think it's where apologetics is most useful and fruitful. Um, it's just being right. being, being hospitable, having a meal, having coffee. And I have various tactics and strategies I have in doing that. Um, but those are the uh, few ways that apologetics is really important in what we do in a church clinic context trying to reach non-believers. Wonderful. Well, Daniel, I appreciate you coming on and appreciate you kind of sharing your, your heart and your vision. And I think you make some, make some excellent uh, points. I think it's good. Um, you know, not every, as you say, not every pastor is going to be, uh, you know, William Lane Craig for sure, but it's good just to have some of those things in the, in our arsenal um, if we need it. So really yep. appreciate all the stuff you guys do and, uh, Look forward to continuing to uh, work and minister with you. Yeah, hey, brother, thank you. I appreciate the ministry you do at Winthrop and this radio show. Uh, you're a blessing. So thank you for all that you and Melissa do. Uh, amen, brother. Look forward to talking with you soon. All right. Thanks, brother. Bye. God bless. All right, folks. Uh, Daniel's a Daniel's a good guy and uh, really, really appreciate his ministry. He's... he's um, very, uh, very, very good pastor. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, several of our Ratio Christie students actually go to his church, and um, you know, I really appreciate it. We had a, a situation where uh, one of our students was required to uh, basically the teacher had them reading a bunch of Matthew vines and. Uh, might have been a couple other authors that basically defend uh, kind of the gay Christian movement. And, you know, myself, my interest is more kind of in the philosophy and apologetics, so I'm not real good yet. <laughs> I say yet because I'm still training um, with biblical languages, uh, et cetera. Uh, and, and a lot of those um, a lot of those arguments kind of hinge on that. Uh, and so... We were able to send our, our students to debt, Pastor Daniel, and uh, he was able to help the student out uh, really good. So just uh, appreciate his heart and his love for the Word of God and uh, defense of the faith, etc. And uh, I think if we had more pastors like that, church would be a better place. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back. We're going to jump into the worldview discussion and be taking your calls at 760-542-3907. That's 760-542-3907. I just want to start off by saying that this was not a tempest in a teapot. Chiseled into the stone of the Reformation wall are the Latin words post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. Luther was convinced that the gospel itself had fallen into darkness and obscurity in the late Middle Ages. The Reformation, from his perspective, was the recapturing and recovering of nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel is so plain in Scripture that a child can understand it. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church 
and falls into apostasy. But beyond the general ecclesiastical application there, Luther, by extension, would be saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which you stand or fall, the article upon which I stand or fall. Again, why? Because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Hi, I'm Frank Turek. There are four major questions we cover in it. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist seminar. The first question is, does truth exist? This book, the Bible, can't be true if truth doesn't exist or if it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative. We're going to show in the first part of the seminar that truth does exist and you can know it. Because, you know, if truth doesn't exist, then this book, The God Delusion, can't be true either. But we're going to show that the book could be true. So could this be true? So we cover, does truth exist first? The second question is, does God exist? The Bible can't be true if God doesn't exist. If there is no God, you might as well throw this book away and every other book that talks about God. But we're going to show, through two scientific arguments and one philosophical argument, that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there, and we're not going to use the Bible to show you that evidence. We're just going to give you evidence and let you see where it leads. The third question is, are miracles possible? Again, this book can't be true if miracles are not possible. If miracles are not possible, throw this book away and every other book that talks about miracles. We're going to see that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle of all has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. We're going to show you that evidence, and then we're going to deal with David Hume's argument against miracles and show you that Hume was not only wrong, there is good evidence to believe in miracles. The fourth and final question is, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. If truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if miracles actually occurred in the first century to authenticate Jesus and his apostles as truly being from God. We can look at the 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we call the New Testament and see if they're historically reliable. If they are, and we will show you evidence that indeed they are, then we can say that the entire Old Testament is true as well. You'll see why when you come to the seminar, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Please come and bring your friends. See you there. Oh, I forgot one more thing. If I time the seminar exactly right, there'll be no time for your questions. No, no, no. There will be time for your questions, so please come with your questions, whether you're a Christian, an atheist, or anyone in between. 
we're going to try and answer your questions. So there will be time for that. Hope to see you at the seminar. Thanks. We are back, folks, and we are going to be looking at world views, the battle of the world views. This is a study we've been looking at for a while, and we're going to conclude today. And we've talked about the importance of a correct world view. If you don't have a correct world view, the results can be disastrous. Uh, we interpret things wrongly. We do not have a correct worldview. So what is the worldview? Well, we've uh, gone over the last couple of weeks. Worldview is, is a pair of lenses, you could say, or a pair of glasses that you view the world with. We look at things like ultimate reality, ethics epistemology, these things such as how do we know things? How do we know that there's a mind outside of my body or outside of my own mind? Uh, what categories of knowledge is uh, really count as knowledge? These are things we're going to be looking at as we continue our discussion with worldviews. We've talked about basically the three main worldviews. Uh, which is pantheism, uh, atheism, or you could say naturalism, uh, and theism. And there's different subsets within these. So, for example, within pantheism, you know, you have uh, Hinduism, and then with that you have several New Age beliefs, uh, etc. But they all kind of have a pantheistic worldview. Within uh, naturalism, you can have atheists and agnostics, and we, we'll get into a little more uh, about some of those definitions. Uh, and then within theism, generally that means people that hold to a to, to monotheism, uh, belief that there's one God that exists 
uh, outside of space, time, and matter. Now, of course, there's there's deism uh, as well, uh, but of course, the deists do not hold that God is a personal being doing miracles, acting, and etc. in the space-time universe uh, outside of creation. And so, we we've looked at pantheism. We played a clip last week of Oprah Winfrey and her views regarding Jesus. She was very clear that uh, Jesus, in her words, can't possibly be the only way, right? And people people think this today. Uh, we really started the series uh, as we look at the, the coexist bumper sticker, this idea that all religions not only should coexist but are equally true. And we talked about that. We said, look, if what you mean by coexist is we should live together and not kill each other, I think pretty much we agree with that. <laughs> I don't think people are going to disagree with that. Uh, but if uh, really what's meant by that, coexist, is all religions are equally true. All religions um, have equal equal truth values. And this is what we're saying, that can't be the case. It just, it, it can't. And it's it's funny because I, I go down to uh, a prison every Monday afternoon where I teach a apologetics and theology class. And these are not just a bunch of Christians in the class. These are um, a lot of non-believers. There's Muslims in the class, uh, atheists, agnostics, etc. And I allow them to ask questions. I want them to ask questions. Uh, a lot of these guys have, have been brought up in a church, uh, normally, you know, were brought up with grandma uh, because the, the, the parents or whatever were to uh, didn't have it together, we'll say, in order to take care of them. And so the, so grandma had to take care of them. And, of course, going to church with grandma, you know, you're not going to get to really ask a lot of questions. You're told uh, this is how it is and this is what you believe and don't question it. So when they come to, to uh, my class on Mondays, I, I want them to ask questions. I encourage that. Uh, and so they do. They take advantage of that, and uh, and that's good because we want them to. Uh, but you know, when we talk about that, not all paths lead to God. Some of them were very surprised to hear that, and they just have this idea that that is just so unloving, right? This is kind of how our our culture has taught us, right? To say that. Not all worldviews are true, or not all religions are true. It's just deemed as unloving. But when you look at it, and you look at the rationale of the statement, and you apply just basic laws of logic to it, we can see that it's got to be true. Islam says God has no son. Christianity says Jesus is God's son. Christianity says Jesus Christ, who uh, is God the Son, rose from the dead after being crucified. Islam says Jesus did not die on the cross. Jesus did not rise from the dead. Christianity says the New Testament and the Old Testament is the Word of God. It's inerrant, it's infallible, it's inspired. 
Islam denies that. Mormonism says there is more than one God. You yourself, through a process of exaltation, could end up being a God. Christianity says there's one God who coexists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Both can't be true. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus Christ is a created being. Before he was Christ, he was Michael the Archangel. He came down to this earth, took on human form, became Jesus, died, went back up, rose again spiritually, and uh, is now in heaven uh, and is Michael the Archangel. Bible says Jesus is God's son. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Bottom line, folks, is it's not bigoted to say all these can't be true. It's just not bigoted. It's not being narrow-minded, quote-unquote. It's being rational. We're being rational here. And Christianity is a rational religion. It's a logical religion. It's not something like Hinduism and listening to the one hand clapping and uh, you know embracing logical contradictions. The more contradictory it is, uh, the you know uh, the more profound. Uh, sadly, there are a lot of Christians who treat it like that, and that's why uh, you know apologetics is so scorned today by so many. If you can prove God exists, and if you can give arguments for God's existence, well, then you don't need faith. And so the more absurd something is, the more illogical something is, ah, the greater faith you must have to believe that. And the greater faith you must have to believe that, the more that pleases God. Therefore, you hear these comments like, uh, God's not logical. That's human logic. That's not God's logic. His ways above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. Well, folks, Christianity certainly is a religion that is rational and reasonable, and we would say the very laws of logic flow from the very nature of God. They're not something that are created. Rather, they are something that are discovered by beings made in the image of God. So Christianity is not a, a irrational, unreasonable thing. I just want to talk real quick before I move on here with our battle of worldviews. Been discussion lately with the whole apologetic methodology and the importance of it. Why we need to study these things. Why we uh, need to really invest our time and our minds in studying Apologetic methodology, and largely it's because it, it's going to deal with how do we reach the lost? How do we reach the lost? And without, you know, without getting into too much um, of ground that was been covered on, on three debates now, um, there are those who are going to say, man, it's just so depraved that you can't use... Uh, shouldn't use these outside arguments. You shouldn't use um, arguments for God's existence because um, 
well, for, for one, the reason is so uh, depraved and uh, fallen since the fall. They're never going to reason correctly, uh, etc. And I just want to say, you know, it's it's important that we educate ourselves. And what I mean by that is we, we really want to make sure we're not just looking at one position. People will do that. People will have one particular position or one particular favorite pastor or theologian, and that's all they read, and that's all they know. And then they want to come out dogmatic and uh, calling everyone else who doesn't agree with them, uh, you know, a sinner. And so when it comes to the issue of apologetic methodology, whether you're a presuppositionalist, whether you're a classical guy or an evidentialist, I want to encourage you, read more than one guy. Read more than one guy on your position and read more than one guy that differs with you. If you're a presuppositionalist and you've not read the works of Norman Geisler or Douglas Grotheis um, or Thomas Aquinas or some of these guys, you're not educating yourself. You're not educating yourself. And if you're a classical apologist and you're not reading works from guys like uh, Greg Bonson or uh, Van Til or Greg Welty or uh, James Anderson, some of these guys, and that, then you are not educating yourself. You're indoctrinating yourself. And so I just want to say we need to be balanced on these issues. We need to have a reasoned approach. Um, I'm a classical apologist. I don't hide that fact. Uh, but I will I will gladly say there is much that I have learned from uh, certain presuppositional apologists. I think there's a lot that can be taken from their stuff. I remember... Uh, last year reading uh, Ronald Nash, he, he was a uh, Reformed Baptist uh, philosopher, wrote the book Faith and Reason, and didn't have a lot of real nice things to say when it comes to natural theology uh, and arguments for God's existence, kind of following the vein of, of Aquinas and Augustine, and etc. Uh, but he made some really good points and has some really, really good stuff that what I can do is is I can see what he's, uh, you know, I, I can, I think of it like this in a lot of ways. I think of um, apologetics as, as a tool belt, right? You're, you're a Christian, you're going to go in the world, you're going to engage with non-believers, you need your toolbox or your tool belt. And in this tool toolbox, you're going to have different tools. Sometimes, you know, you watch... Um, you watch things like uh, Way of the Master or other other people that kind of specialize in doing the evangelism, and they they'll say things you know like um, you only should evangelize this particular way. This is the way Jesus did it, and I think we need to be careful with that mentality because not everybody's the same. Now, certainly there's there's some core things that we can always go back to, um, but not everyone's the same. I'm not going to 
um, evangelize an atheist the same as I am going to evangelize a Muslim. Why? Well, because the Muslim already believes God exists, right? Now, granted, I don't think he believes the right God exists, and that's what we need to get him to. But I don't need to give arguments for God's existence because he already believes God exists, already monotheists. So what we need to wrestle with them over is what God? Is it the God of Islam, who's, who's a Unitarian, or is it the God of Christianity, who is Trinitarian? Did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? These are some of the issues I need to look at. With the atheists, we're going to be having to, to go and look at, does God exist? Right? So that's kind of a more of a foundational level we need to look at. Because if you don't have a God that can act, well, you can't have acts of God. And so uh, I think our approach doing evangelism is going to differ based upon who it is we're talking to. And so I think that there are good things in both methods of apologetics. I think there are useful tools in presuppositional, uh, the, the presuppositional apologetic method. So, you know, um, I, I think we can take from both. And, you know, we're free. As Christians, we're free in this area. We're not forced, um, you know, it's not uh, an essential of the faith to take one position over the other. Uh, we have freedom in this area. And so, you know, I think you, what you do is you study, you look at both positions, you, you be fair to both positions. I don't see that a lot on the other side. Don't see that a lot at all on the other side. I had an encounter the, this week. And, uh, you know, uh, in my opinion, not being real fair to the other side. That's one of the things we need to do. We need to be charitable. And we don't want to ascribe motives to people, okay, because you don't agree with a particular method or whatever. Though I don't agree with the presuppositional method 100%, um, I'm not going to ascribe, uh, you know, bad motives to the person or etc. And I'm not going to straw man the argument either. I'm not going to set up a caricature of the position and then attack it, right? As Christians, we're supposed to be honest and we're supposed to be truthful. We're supposed to care for truth. We're not supposed to lie and we're not supposed to be dishonest and not supposed to mislead people. So remember that when you're when you're dealing with uh with other believers and when you're dealing with uh non-believers, we want to be honest about their position. We don't want to to um we don't want to malign the character and we don't want to malign the view in such a way you're attacking a position that the person your interlocutor doesn't even hold. That's just not being intellectually honest, right? So we need to be careful with that. I remember when I first started my uh, bachelor's of uh, religion there at SES, uh, first day in my intro to philosophy class, we were taught about the principle of charity, principle of charity. We, we use uh, textbook questions that matter. Excellent, excellent uh, intro to philosophy textbook. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's one of the first things you learn, the principle of charity, meaning 
don't read the worst possible interpretation you can into a person's view. You give them the benefit of the doubt or you ask for clarity, etc. but you don't assume the worst about the position and then attack it. We want to be charitable. If there's ways to interpret a position uh, without um, you know, maligning the person's position or their view, well, that's what we want to do. I think it's 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 I find it to be very powerful and very persuasive uh, when dealing with someone. Um, you know, you see William Lynn Craig, for example, he's doing these debates or Norm Geisler, and he's he's telling them this. Okay, so let me understand: is your position X? And then he explains the view. He's repeating the view back to him to see is that am I getting your position correct or uh, you know, if not, I don't want to attack a straw man. And the person says, you know, yes, that's that's pretty much right. I think that's correct. And then be able to have dialogue. I think that's that's just virtuous. So <clears throat> anyway, that will kind of lead us into this discussion now as we move on to um, worldviews and battles for the worldview. And again, folks, uh, if you guys want to call, we will take your phone calls, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. So we're going to look at naturalism. I wanted to, to – I was looking to play a clip last week, uh, and it was towards the end of the show, and I couldn't find the clip, and I went and I found it today uh, because I think, I think this is important. Uh, it's it's a little long. It's eight minutes, uh, but this was a this was one of the most brutal interviews I've ever seen. And keep in your mind as you're listening to this discussion what I've talked about with being charitable, being reasonable, being fair, not ascribing motives to your, your the person you're interacting with, uh, etc. Because what you'll see in this discussion is this guy, uh, his name is uh, Abrams, from the Abrams Report. I don't even know if he's still on. Uh, MSNBC is the show he used to have. Uh, but uh, he's interviewing Stephen Meyer. And Dr. Stephen Meyer is one of the leading intelligent design proponents. Actually, we're, we're blessed enough to have him on the show last year and uh, had a great interview with him on, on his new book, um, on Darwin's doubt. Uh, but Meyer, Dr. Meyer, is having a discussion with Dr. Eugenie Scott. For those who are not familiar, Dr. Eugenie Scott works with the National Center uh, for Science Education, which mainly the sole purpose of the organization is to make sure intelligent design and, and creation science, etc., does not get into public schools. And so <clears throat> there's this interview uh, between Dr. Meyer and Dr. Scott, and Abrams is supposed to be the moderator. Abrams is the guy that's kind of conducting the interview. So just remember, we, we've talked a little bit about a little bit about presuppositions and charity, etc. Keep that in mind as you listen to this interview. So we're going to go ahead and play this, and we'll come back and we'll we'll take a few thoughts on this again now. Uh, kind of as we, we close, we're, close our discussion on worldviews. 
we're looking uh, critically at the naturalistic worldview. So here's the, the interview with Dr. Stephen Meyer, Eugenie Scott on the Abrams Show. Take. I have two fundamental problems with intelligent design. Number one, I think it's somewhat dishonest. It is another name for creationism. Who else is the intelligent designer? I have the utmost respect for those who believe and admit they believe that God created life. But the intelligent design movement refuses to come clean about that. Number two, intelligent designers have provided no new evidence to show why evolution should not continue to be the science taught in schools. They offer no other scientific theories. Remember, a scientific theory is not just a hunch. It's, in this case, the conclusion of the scientific community based on evidence, fossils, peer-reviewed studies, etc. Why don't the intelligent designers question the theory of relativity or gravity? Both those theories have unanswered questions as well. Maybe it's because those theories don't upset those who want religion taught in schools. Joining me now is Stephen Meyer, director and senior fellow of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. He co-authored the book Darwinism, Design, and Public Education and backs the teaching of intelligent design. And Eugene Scott is an anthropologist, executive director of the National Center for Science Education, and a strong supporter of uh, teaching evolution. All right. Mr. Meyer, let me deal with that question first. Why just, if, if the problem is that you think that the schools need to teach other possibilities, why not go after the theory of gravity and the theory of relativity as well? Well, the, the, we are a, a group of scientists who are interested in the question of biological origins. And the, the theory of Darwinian evolution, which is the standard textbook theory, is now being questioned by an increasing number of scientists, contrary to the, the little lead-in piece that you had. Uh, over 425 scientists have signed a statement of dissent questioning the power of natural selection to, uh, to explain the complexity of life. And many scientists are pointing to evidence, just in exactly the way you said we should be, uh, to support the design what, hypothesis. Which there major, is which in ma cells now. Which major an, an scientific groups? Which major scientific groups have supported intelligent design? There are there are scientists at the University. Well, of no, not Mexico, scientists. Ask, no, no. I asked ask which major scientific uh, you, groups. You've got your mind made up already. I do. Sir. No, I do. It's clear. But why yeah. don't you let me? Well, I'm admitting let me respond it. to the two points that you made at the top of the hour. Go ahead. You you said there was no scientific evidence supporting intelligent design. All contraire. The cell is now known to be chock full of miniature machines, nanotechnology, uh, and digital code that was unknown in Darwin's time. Yeah. And there are peer-reviewed articles and books that have made very elegant and sophisticated cases for the idea of intelligent design based on these new discoveries. Whoa. This is a science-based uh, argument. And, uh, uh, and uh, in fact, I have a book right here, if you'll permit me a visual. Yeah, no, this I is this is from Cambridge University right. Press called Debating right. Design. Just because it's a book doesn't tell me anything. Well, I mean, there are also I mean, articles. Uh, all right. All right. Look, the Eugene, point about Eugene the book, Scott, my understanding is that uh, there is not a single peer-reviewed article out there that supports intelligent design. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. You are correct. So what, so what is Mr. Meyer saying? So I have published a peer-reviewed article, and Eugenie Scott's organization, the National Center for Science Education, led the charge to discredit not only the article, but the editor who allowed it to go through peer review. Since that but time, Steve, eight or ten additional Steve, articles have been published, and there are Steve, several peer-reviewed books advocating intelligent design. Well, I, don't, I, don't, I think the peers so, may, be, may be the other people Steve, involved in this organization. But No, let the me, peer, this was published at the Smithsonian's Top right. Technical Biology Eugenie, Journal by an editor right, with Steve. two... Eugenie Scott, one, let me let her two, respond. Let me let her respond. Go ahead. Well, you're, you're, you're asserting you. false things. Go ahead, Eugenie Scott. Steve, your article doesn't mention intelligent design. Your article is an attack does. on evolution. Now, as no, far as I'm concerned, the last part of the article is an article about design. intelligent design. It's a case for it. It's a positive Steve, case for design. 
Get on our website. Steve, you you can't anyway, hang on, Steve. Hang on. Let, it, let her respond. Let her respond. Hang on. Let her hang on. Here, but Steve Meyer, hang on a second. I yeah. when, when you and I are going at it, I'll let you interrupt me. But let, let, me, let me let you let her let her respond. Go she ahead. can't tell me what right. is in my own Look, article. She, well, though. she yeah. can be more honest, maybe, about what's in the article. Though. Go ahead. What's, go ahead. Finish your Intelligent thought. Intelligent design. Intelligent design makes the claim that there are things out there in nature that are just categorically unexplainable by natural cause. Therefore, they were created, designed by an intelligent agent, and nobody's fooled the intelligent agent is God. Now, how can you call that a science when your basic organizing principle is we can't explain this through natural cause? What science does is explain things through natural cause. And the whole idea of intelligent design just completely flies in the face of that. Yeah. You can talk about refereed articles, you can talk about books, you can talk about everything else. But you've just the shifted your ground, Eugene. You said there were anybody let me ask you about that, Steve. Uh, the, the, point, the point that she's making the, is, let me ask this question. Let me follow up exactly what you please just let said. Me finish Hang on, Eugenie, it's, it's, me, it's Dan Abrams for a second. Eugene, Eugene, it's Dan Abrams. I just right. want to follow up on the thought that you just offered and ask Excuse Stephen Meyer. Me, I haven't finished the thought. All right, but just let me follow All up. Right. Is intelligent design God, Stephen Meyer? The, 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 what is intelligent design? the theory by saying that we're arguing from... Uh, what but I'm asking you, what is intelligent design? Who is the intelligent designer? I'll tell you what intelligent design is. Who is the intelligent designer? Who is the intelligent designer? The intelligent, what the theory of intelligent design says is there are certain features of living systems that are best explained by an intelligence. And what and does that mean? Wait, wait, that, wait, that's the most uh, circular uh, thing I've ever heard. What no. does, who is the intelligent designer? The, we do not identify yeah. the I know you don't. That's why I'm calling no. you on it. I want to know who it is. Well, it's, let me explain, just let me admit explain it. why it's that's very why simple. You just can't. It's religion. You're asserting without letting me answer your question. So respond. You're There's not a, responding to my question. I'll, is it religion I'll, or not? I'd be happy to respond. Is it religion or not? It, no, it's a scientific theory based on scientific evidence. And that's why we can't identify the designer. We see signatures of intelligence when, that can be analyzed with established methods of design detection. I don't know what any of that means. Okay, intelligence with information encoded in the cell, Mr. Abrams. Yeah. Digital code. If you found information, the software code in any other realm of experience, yeah. you would infer that an intelligence had played a role. Yeah. You might not be able to tell, however, well, from that, analyzing that, no, no, the evidence. That assumes wait a second, that assumes evolution doesn't exist. That's the problem with your argument. No, you assume to, to accept your argument is to assume, first of all, that evolution can't be the explanation. No. And then yet it, it must be. We have concluded I, that undirected natural yeah, processes right. are insufficient you, to explain that got, information. I get the feeling that the game that's being played here is a lot of circular talk. Oh, that's, that's a lovely baited question there, Dan. Yeah, it that's was. Not, it was totally, that's not an look, objective question. Have I, have I claimed to be objective? Did I not come out at the beginning and tell people exactly yeah, you did. what I my position is? I think it's good to own up to that, okay. too. Yeah. I, I'm totally owning up to it. I will never on this program disguise or hide because I want my viewers to know I'm being straight with them. Go ahead, Eugenie. Intelligent design has descended with very little modification from creation science. And the reason why they're so coy about the identity of the designer is why we're here in Dover. The Supreme Court and other courts have ruled that religious advocacy, uh, such as creationism, violates the First Amendment Establishment Clause. So the intelligent design proponents from the very beginning tried to whitewash religion out as much as they could. Now, to say, well, we're not claiming who the designer is, is just a sham. Yeah. Either the designer is God or somebody with the same skill set. And, and there's no point and, in and I, And as I said at the yeah, outset, let me, I respect the people who will you, come you, out you, and you say honestly. I'll, let you, I'll give you the final word. I will give you the final word. I will give you the final word. I respect the people who come out and say, you know what? I think that God created life. And I have the utmost respect for those people. 
What we're talking about here are people who are not admitting what we're talking about and are talking on a lot of codes and circular arguments, etc. Ms. Stephen Meyer, you get the final word. Uh, I personally do think that God created the world, but the reason that as a, a design theorist we are careful not to say more than that we can detect intelligence is that not because we're trying to pull a, a, a sham pull the wool over anyone's eyes. We're trying to be careful about what the evidence can establish and what yeah, it can't. No. The argument for design is based on evidence, and All the right, evidence well. establishes an, an intelligent cause, but it can't uh, establish the identity yeah. of the intelligence right. from the biological And the bottom line is, when you get any major scientific organization on your side, I will then apologize. Until then, I will continue That's to attack a procedural argument. Design. We want all people right. to examine the evidence. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, look the, at the, the evidence. Problem is, what, the problem is all the scientific organizations, that's all they do. Center for Science yeah, Education. all they do is examine the evidence and reject again and again until You explain design. digital right. code in okay. cells. All right, yeah, all right. Coming up. Thank you both. Appreciate it, by the way. Stephen Meyer, you're a good sport. Beth Holloway, fighting mad and fighting back. She's talking with international lawyers. But what can she really do? How can they help her? Come on. So, folks, as you hear, I mean, it's a, it's a brutal interview. Um, Abrams, uh, you know, at least he admits he's certainly not objective uh, in any way, shape, or form. He already has his mind made up. That's also not hard to see. And, uh, you know, you just you listen to the discussion and you just you, you cringe. Um, because one of the things that Dr. Meyer brings out is what a lot of people react to is not the evidence for the theory. It's not the evidence for the theory that people are reacting to. Rather, it is the implications of the theory people don't like. Um, it's it's not the evidence. It's the implications. Notice, Abrams uh, clearly said, he, I don't even know what you're talking about. Digital code, huh? What? I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't even know what that means. Right, and that's because, uh, Mr. Abrams, you're not familiar with the debate. You're not familiar with the discussion. You're not familiar with the evidence. What you do is continue to, to, to give the same talking points over and over and over. And bottom line is you do not want, uh, you don't, you, you don't want uh, ID to be taught in schools. Well, that's, that's fine. But don't keep saying things like there's no evidence for it. Or um, one, of the, one of the things he kept bringing up, uh, this idea of well, where's the, the peer-reviewed journals, etc. Well, Folks, first of all, there has been peer-reviewed journals. Uh, in fact, if you go to the Discovery website, uh, you'll find you'll find a lot uh, of the of the um, articles that have been peer-reviewed, and there's there's the scientists that have done that. One of the things, um, see if I can find this here, I don't I probably I'm not going to be able to pull it up. But there was an article. Last week, uh, it was talking about the, the design of the hands. Um, let me see if I can pull this up. And it was so fascinating because what happened was, in this article, the editor, or not, I'm sorry, not the editor. Uh, let, me, let me pull it up right here. I actually have it right here. Controversy, this is published March 8th, 2016. 
Controversy is raging after a peer-reviewed open access scientific journal, uh, PLOS One, P-L-O-S O-N-E, published a paper recently by a team of four Chinese researchers, three in China, one in Massachusetts. The paper dealt with everyday topics such as how human hands grasp objects and showed these actions that we often take for granted require complex bio, biomechanical architecture. But this would hardly have been controversial if not for its unfortunate use of some extremely taboo language. The researchers in multiple places refer to the creator. As I'm going to say, the explicit functional link indicates that the biochemical characteristics of tendon. Tendinous, I don't even know how to say that, uh, connective architecture between muscles and articulations is the proper design by the creator to perform a multitude of daily tasks in a comfortable way. Uh, so that's one example. In the introduction, it says, thus hand coordination affords humans the ability uh, to flexibly uh, and comfortably control and complex structure to perform numerous tasks. Hand coordination should indicate the mystery of the creator's invention. Now, what happens is outcry. <laughs> the article goes on to say uh, the public outcry was swift and fierce. One editor at the journal posted, quote, just found out that the paper was published with evidence about some creator. If not retracted immediately, I will resign as editor. Buckling to the pressure, the journal did exactly that shortly afterward with the following statement, quote, in light of the concerns identified, the plus one editors have decided to retract the article. The retraction is being processed and will be posted as soon as possible. We apologize for the errors and the oversight leading to the publication of this paper. The errors. Right, because it said creator. Goes on to say, perhaps even sadder than the public response to this paper, however, was that even the authors of the paper themselves seemed to have backed down. They attempted to blame references to the creator on errors in translation rather than a belief in intelligent design. The first author wrote these comments: "Quote: We are sorry for drawing the debates about creationism. Our study has no relationship with creationism." English English is not our language. Our understanding of the word creator was not actually uh, as a n native English speaker expected. Now we realized that we had misunderstood the word creator. What we would like to express is that the biomechanical characteristics of tenedious connective architecture between muscles and articulation uh, is that uh, proper design by the nature result of evolution, to perform a multitude of daily grasping tasks. We will change the creator to nature in the revised manuscript. We apologize for any trouble this may have caused. So here you see, folks, uh, they continue to go on and and make these ridiculous claims about, well, what, how come uh, there's no peer-reviewed uh, articles ever written? How come there's no peer-reviewed journals? Well, the 
article goes on, uh, if there's really good evidence for design, why don't you submit paper for a secular peer-reviewed scientific journal and gain the support of the mainstream scientific community? Well, this incident, the paper goes on to say, should serve as a perfect response to any such challenge and a test case, test case for what happens in such circumstances. Far from giving due consideration, the so-called scientific community does the exact opposite. They scorn and they bully anyone who would dare attempt to suggest a creator and do their best to prevent any such evidence from being seen in the light of day. And then there would be any, you know, all kind of pressure to remove the editor who allowed this. So, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, if only, you know, if you guys, if it's really science, if you're really doing science, then... Uh, how come we don't see this all the time in the scientific journals? Well, there you go, folks. You're not going to see them in the scientific journals. Frequently, though, uh, like I said earlier, there is a list, I believe, on the Discovery Institute uh, where they have some published articles. I think it's probably uh, wouldn't have come out and said things like the creator, etc., uh, but it certainly will argue for design. But you see the you see the bias, you see the um, the worldview rules out any possibility for intelligent design. So even if you were to write on it, well, <laughs> it's not going to get published. And if it does get published, you're going to have an outcry and people uh, ready to you know, shut the magazine or the journal down. And so, of course, they're not going to publish that. Uh, and that goes back to being charitable. So, I mean, you know, there you have it, folks. That's, that's just that is just how it is. All right, we are going to take a short break, and we will be back after this as we continue our look at the world views, battle of the world view. We are looking at naturalism. I need to hear constantly that the pastor of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, is gentle forbearing, patient, and kind. There's a wonderful text in the 18th Psalm where David says, Lord, your gentleness has made me great. What do you expect from a pastor? I want them to preach faithfully. That's absolutely vital. What about his character? Is he kind? In his humanity, our Lord Jesus Christ was moment by moment upheld by his father and if that is the model then reformed pastors will be men who recognize that they are upheld men in other words they are spirit dependent servants and reformed pastors are to be men who serve the people of God and the people are to know that their pastors are men who will do all within their powers to seek their good, who will go out of their way morning, noon or night to serve their spiritual, present and eternal good. Not men who cultivate a name for themselves, but men who have one boast, Jesus Christ is Lord. One of the principal notes of the Reformed pastor will be to help his people more and more understand this 
that there are people that God loves. That is the pattern that is to shape the life and ministry of the Reformed Pastor. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Spiritual rebirth is the work of God. When Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 about being quickened by the Holy Ghost while we're dead in sin and trespasses, he's talking about regeneration, which is a supernatural work. It is a work done from above by the immediate power of God, and it is something that only God can do. You cannot. Make yourself be reborn. Any more than Lazarus could have brought himself out of the tomb. Just as you did not do anything for your natural birth except be born, so your rebirth is a matter of the mercy and grace of God. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Frank, is truth true for you, but not for me? I always hear that, and I usually say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody, then true for you and not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. <laughs> I know that can give you intellectual constipation, yeah, yeah, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's actually, there's an easier way of illustrating this. True for you, but not for me, say, sure, go try that with your bank teller. Go to your bank teller one day and say, look, I'd like $100,000 out of my account. The bank teller looks at your account and says, I'm sorry, sir, you only have $47.16 in your account. That's easy to get the money. Bobby, you simply say, that's true for you, but not for me. Give me the hundred grand. Are you going to get the money? <laughs> no, you're not. If it's true, there's only $47.16 in your account. That's true for all people at all times and all places when referring to your account at that time. It's just true. And by the way, it's true that Jesus rose from the dead... If he really did, that's true for all people at all times and all places. If he really did. Of course, it's not true if he didn't rise from the dead. And I think the evidence is quite strong that he did. So saying it's true for you but not for me may sound good. It's the mantra of our culture. But it's self-defeating. It's logically self-defeating. And it just doesn't work. Sounds like you're trying to say that truth corresponds to reality. I am. I'm actually (laughs) trying to say that.
16 after the hour, folks, as we are back here on Theology Matters with Flues. We are looking at worldviews. We are looking at the battle for the worldviews. We have looked at pantheism. We are now looking at naturalism, and then we will move on to theism. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. If you go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouge, you can find us on Facebook. We've done shows for the last four years now, and uh, love doing the show, plan on doing it for as long as the Lord allows, plan on bringing you guys really good guests here in the future. We're working on that. We're working on our schedule. Keep my family in prayer. Uh, For those who don't know, my wife uh, was diagnosed with uh, a rare disease in November, right around Thanksgiving time. She uh, had just started falling down a lot and didn't know what was going on. And After further tests and just more evaluation um, was determined that she has a disease called transverse myelitis, which uh, is a disease that really attacks the spinal cord. And uh, we'll see what happens. You know, right now she's uh, you know in a wheelchair, and, uh, doesn't have a lot of strength. Going to physical therapy, occupational therapy, but it's been a challenge. It's been a challenge for myself. It's been a challenge for for my wife getting used to this. Um, I am also disabled. I suffered a bout of the H1N1 swine flu four years ago, uh, which really devastated my body. I left me with permanent uh, nerve damage in my left leg. So, you know, on top of all that, now I have a wife uh, who is just, you know, suffering um, with this disease. But God has been amazing through this whole thing, I must say. And, uh, you know, I think we'll probably do a show on this uh, and just talk about how suffering and that really does help us um, having a Christian worldview and a biblical worldview and, again, why the worldviews matter. So, folks, keep us in your prayers. Uh, We do appreciate that, and we're thankful that, uh, that you guys listen to the show. And you guys care about the things of God. So let's continue with our talk on the worldviews. So there's several categories. One of the categories of a worldview is this idea of concept of God. Well, naturalists obviously reject the view of a personal God uh, who intervenes in the universe or has existence. As we said earlier, if you don't have a God that can act, you cannot have acts of God. You don't get miracles. Uh, Human beings all worship something, though, I would say, and many naturalists have just traded in the Judeo-Christian concept of God and instead uh, worship and serve the creation. I always think of um, Steve Irwin. He was a a gentleman that, you know, I I highly respect. Uh, He had, uh, you know, the show Crocodile Hunter. He was on Animal Planet and, you know, just... uh, a guy that, you know, it's not, obviously I didn't know him personally or anything, but, you know, a guy that comes across as just a genuine guy, loves, uh, loved creation, loved animals, had a passion for these. 
but to my knowledge, Steve Irwin was uh, an atheist. And, um, you know, as we all know, he died a tragic death uh, in that. What I know, what I've noticed is, uh, among a lot of atheists, naturalists, etc., when you stop worshiping the God who we all know exists, Romans 1 says, we just change our affections and we just worship something else. Romans 1 talks about this, Romans 1.18. So one of the questions that comes up a lot is, what about those who've never heard about God? What about those who've never heard of Jesus or the Bible? You know, do they go to hell because they haven't heard of Jesus? And of course, uh, that's a that's a that's a not not a very thoughtful question, unfortunately, because people don't go to hell for not hearing about Jesus. People go to hell because they've sinned against God. But let's read this: Romans chapter one, verses eighteen, starting in verse eighteen, says, "The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men." who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And it goes on to say, in the things that have been made. So you have the book of Scripture and the book of nature. And as Christians, we really should study both. But it says, even if you don't have the book of Scripture, you certainly have the book of nature. This is uh, sometimes what theologians will call uh, general revelation. It says, so uh, it's been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that they are without excuse, without excuse for although they knew God in, uh, and that they, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. What did they do? Well, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Right? They know God exists because the creation itself testifies of a creator. You know, I'll often ask people when they ask me things like, you know, what's the evidence for uh, a creator? It's like having to, you know, light a, light a candle to see the sun. I don't know who, you know, designed the house that I'm living in since the house was built in the 50s. Uh, But the design itself demonstrates there's a designer. Laws come from lawgivers. Information comes from an informer. And so Romans 1 says the creation itself is evidence of the creator. But they exchanged this, they said. Romans 1 says they, they exchanged this uh, giving glory to the honor and, and honor to 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 God, they instead give it to mortal man, to birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, verse 24, 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so when people do that, when people willingly uh, dilute themselves and willingly worship that which they know uh, is not God, well, God gives them up. God gives them over to their debased uh, minds. So we'd say human beings, they all worship something. Uh, The naturalists have traded in the Judeo-Christian concept of God and instead worship the creator. Now, their view of the of external reality or uh, branch uh, falling under metaphysics. In the naturalist view, all can be reduced to matter. Everything can be reduced really to basically to material. Uh, there is no soul or immaterial part of man. Uh, so like when man dies, it's not as though the soul goes on living or anything like that. Uh, the universe and basically all in it can be reduced to to matter and energy. Now, I've I've heard some say, you know, well, there's some atheists that they think something like, uh, you know, like platonic forms or something like this. Uh, Yeah, there's maybe some sophisticated uh, atheists that believe those kind of things. Uh, But your average atheist on the street and, uh, you know, you you, you read the works from like the new atheists, the new atheists, and uh, people like Carl Sagan, remember his slogan, the universe is all there is, was, or ever will be. And that's the idea. Uh, basically, everything can be reduced to matter or energy. There's no afterlife. There's, no, uh, there's nothing that's going to uh, survive after my death. The, the me or the I uh, ends up going into the ground and becoming word food. So let's look at the view of naturalism's uh, epistemology, or what is knowledge. Now, we live in a culture today that pretty much has adopted this idea of a uh, kind of a strict empiricism. And with that, what has really spawned has been this idea of scientism. Scientism. So sometimes it seems like every time I say this, people will ask me, uh, does this have anything to do with Scientology? <laughs> no, it does not have anything to do with Scientology. Scientism is the idea that the way we get our knowledge and the way we find truth is through through the sciences, through the scientific method. If you can't touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, uh, then you really don't have good grounds to believe it. And you hear this all the time. This is why atheists will say things like, you know, believing in the existence of God is no different than believing in the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. Can't see it, can't touch it, can't taste it, can't smell it. Therefore, why should we believe that God exists? Well, problems with this, devastating problems with scientism. First and foremost, it's self-refuting. If the proposition we can only know truth through the scientific method, that proposition is not something I can run through the scientific method, so uh, 
I shouldn't believe it, according to its own standards. So scientism is actually self-defeating. Secondly, it's just demonstrably false. It makes a category error. I think we talked a little bit about this last week. It's like trying to, as uh, Greg Coco would say in his article, uh, trying to weigh a chicken with a yardstick. See, when I'm looking at historical uh, accounts and historical events in the past, that's a different criteria. That's different methods that I have to use in order to find out things uh, in history, right? Um, I can't I can't do scientific experiments on whether Abraham Lincoln uh, is a president or was a was a president or you know Julius Caesar or Josephus, etc. The way I know about history is through historical method. And these are the, the the criteria that historians have discovered that come up uh, that they have come up and uh, demonstrated and shown how we can know certain things in history. So there's just certain things that science cannot tell us. It just simply cannot tell us. For example, can science tell us that uh, the Holocaust was was morally wrong? No, can't. It cannot. It can tell you if you put a person into an oven at uh, you know X amount of degrees that that person is going to die. But science can't tell you whether or not you should do that, right? Because there is no moral principles in science. Now, some will try and some will try and argue. Um, and I was, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm preparing to do a few different talks in the weeks coming up, and I'm. One of the books I'm reading is um, Stealing from God by Frank Turk and kind of summarizes Sam Harris's book, uh, The Moral Landscape. And basically um, what he's saying in that book is is uh, trying to put this principle, and you hear this a lot from atheists, that we can know morality from science if you just employ, if you kind of um, apply this method of if something harms us, then we shouldn't do it because we want to survive. We want to be strong. We want to be able to survive. We want a a strong species. And the criticism of this is, why should we survive? Where are you getting that standard? Where are you getting that to, um, you know, there's a difference between between ought and is, right? There's uh, Science tells us what is. Science tells us again, put a, you know you put a um, a person in in an oven and crank it up. What's going to happen to that person at a certain degrees, chemical composition, etc. But it can't tell you whether you ought to do that. So there's a difference between is and ought. And so, the, yeah, we if we want to survive, sure, but there's not some um, moral objective out there that says we ought to survive. In fact, you have some people that are called speciesists that believe all humans should die off because we're we're hurting the earth, we're hurting animals, we're uh, we're devastating our planet. And so the best thing that could happen is for for people to die off. Of course, these people never volunteer to be first. They just 
you know, things things like abortion and et cetera should happen, infanticide. Um, well, that's a different topic. But point is, you don't get morality from science. You can't you, you can't discover right and wrong with science. What you get is uh, chemical composition, you know, et cetera. Uh, you can't get historical truths from science, from the scientific method. Those things are historical. And so you have to use historical means and methods and categories. And so we would say uh, the, the way a lot of, a lot of uh, atheists believe how we get knowledge say is, is fatally flawed. Scientism is a, a major issue. It's... it's um, Again, it's self-defeating, and it's just demonstrably false. So we need to be, you know, we need to be on the lookout and careful for that. You just you see it every day, on the television, etc. Uh, and so, yeah, those are those are some of the problems with that. So let's see here. Let's let's talk just real quickly here about. Uh, the issue of atheism and agnosticism, uh, because there are different methods. There's different, uh, I'm sorry, not methods, but <clears throat> definitions. So with agnosticism, you have um, weak agnosticism and you have a strong agnosticism. Uh, weak agnosticism is this idea uh, that I don't know if God exists. Maybe someday the evidence will be there and uh, we will be able to to um, know with some conclusive evidence that God exists. Right now, um, I'm not convinced. Now that is, uh, though I don't agree with it, it's a respectable position, Right? They're saying they're open. They're saying, hey, you know, hey, if the evidence comes along, et cetera. I'll be honest, folks. At the end of the day, the reason people do not believe in God is very rarely to do with the evidence. Uh, most always, it's, it's moral issues. People do not like, thus saith the Lord. They don't want to be put under the law of God and the rule of God and the headship of God. Why people like Dawkins and them have no problem, uh, you know, positing things like maybe aliens created us, or maybe deism is true. You see, when you start saying theism and the God of the Bible, etc., well, now you're dealing with more than just this vanilla, you know, type of a God who doesn't care, but one who has rules, one who has standards, one who says he will judge us. But I think the vast majority of people, it's not about evidence. And of course, the question is then, well, then why do apologetics? Well, because apologetics, uh, part, part of it's going to get down into what do you think the role of apologetics is? So if your view is that apologetics is only for evangelism, then yeah, that's not going to make a whole lot of sense. I don't view apologetics as that. I view the task of apologetics as defending the Christian faith. So, for example, with our Ratio Christi students, um, if, if one of them is uh, in astronomy class and the professor says, well, God is out of a job because we know that the universe is eternal. 
don't need God. Well, and it never had a beginning. Well, one of our students could raise their hand and give the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. But what are they doing when they do that? They're destroying this professor's claim. Do we hope that that professor will come to Christ and repent of his sins, etc.? Of course we do. Of course we do. That's, uh, of course that's what we want. But that's not the only reason we do that. You're going to demolish that claim because it's false. Right? It's a false claim, for one. Secondly, there's other Christians in the class and we want to help strengthen their faith and show them that there really are answers to these claims. Third, uh, one of the things John Calvin had said was, we want to shut the mouth of the infidel. See, people get real bold. People talk quite a lot about the God of the Bible. They like to mock, and they like to make fun, and they like to, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, and this, this is, you know, college campuses all over. Uh, like to go after freshmen or their, you know, whatever their students, uh, because they have a, you know, a psychological and an academic um, uh, power over them, you know, and so they have no problem demolishing the Bible and mocking the Bible, mocking Christians, mocking Jesus. But see, if you they they do this to someone who is trained in apologetics or have some training in philosophy, who can actually uh, counter their argument. Because most of the arguments that are given nowadays, especially on the campus, they're not very good at all. They're not thought through. They're just typical kind of bumper sticker slogans. Uh, and so when they see that these questions have answers, well, what happens is they're not as, as free to mock and ridicule because they know if they do, uh, the, the Christian in the class who has studied these issues uh, is going to be able to answer the objection and answer it soundly. So, you know, it gets into that, too. What is the role of apologetics? Um, if you have a, that, that role as apologetics, is, it's defensive. It's, it's, um, it's to rip down false arguments. Second Corinthians 10.5, we demolish arguments. And every pretension, it sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So that's one of the things that we do. Uh, so apologetics is helpful in that venue. So also I would say God can and God does use arguments to draw people to himself. Those who say God does not use uh, arguments, whether philosophical or scientific, and that they're just a distraction, don't know what they're talking about demonstrate this from the Bible. Show me in the Bible where it says we are not allowed to use philosophical or scientific arguments or that God cannot use those things to draw people to himself. If that's your claim, back it up with the Bible. Uh, otherwise, you know, um, it may not be your thing. It may not be the thing that you think works, whatever. Uh, you're entitled to that opinion, but when you when you start making dogmatic claims, you got to be able to back it up, and uh, that's just a position that's not defensible at all. So you have a weak agnosticism, and then you have a stronger agnosticism, 
And the stronger agnosticism is is self-defeating. Because what strong agnosticism says is, I, I don't know if God exists, and nobody can know whether God exists. So I can't know if God exists, and neither can you. No one can know because God is unknowable. He can't be known. A lot of people have taken that position over the years. A lot of people. Well, what's the problem with it? Self-defeating. It is a self-defeating position. In order to claim that God cannot be known, you have to know something about God. You'd have to know that he can't be known. Otherwise, you you can always, even if you rejected the Bible or whatever, um, how would you know that he could never talk to us or commune with us or communicate with us? How would you know that? To say that um, he, he is unknowable and he can't be known, you have to know something about God, primarily that he is unknowable, and that, is, that would be a self-defeating position. So, again, soft agnosticism, that's kind of the more intellectually respectable position among people. Uh, it's the, I, I should say it's, it's the safest position. It's not, uh, I, I think the evidence for God's existence is very clear. It's very uh, persuasive. It's powerful. Uh, I think people that uh, reject it, I just don't think that... Uh, yeah, I just I don't uh, I don't think they're doing their homework because I think the arguments are sound. Um, but those who 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 take the strong agnostic position, uh, it's it's indefensible, and that's why people take that. And it's the same reason uh, they don't accept atheism, uh, because atheism now a lot of debate has broke out over this recently, um, because people will say that. Uh, you know, atheism is just a lack of belief in God. Of course, the problem with this is um, it's just a it's just a that's just a bad definition. You know, uh, cats lack belief in God. Uh, rocks lack beliefs in God. So therefore, a rock is an atheist. Uh, look, if you if you look up any standard philosophical dictionary, um, Stanford or etc., uh, you know, it's it's says atheism is a denial it's a negation of god's existence they do not believe god exists uh and and atheists have tried to you know turn this into well it's just a lack of a belief in god okay so what's the difference between an agnostic and an atheist you know at that point what's the distinction no atheism has always been the affirmation that god does not exist and it's and they know atheists know that's too strong of a position. It's too easy to to knock that position out because you would have to claim you have all you know all the knowledge there is to know, and you just simply can't. And there are things that we could know. For example, not every single god, uh, you know, there are gods. If you put them, for example, if I say invisible, invisible pink god, right? That's that's um, a unicorn. Well, if he's invisible, he can't be pink. <laughs> All right. So if you you just look at, at certain conceptions of God, uh, and if the attributes are contradictory, then they cannot exist. 
You can't have a married bachelor. You can't have a four-sided triangle uh, or a four, you know, four-point triangle. These type of things. Uh, and so, yeah, if somebody could show that the conception of the Christian God, for example, the attributes uh, are contradictory, then yeah, there would be a problem. Their Christians, uh, if it really truly was a contradiction, could not be true. But that's never been shown. People have tried to show that uh, for a long time. People believed, um, you know, with the with the problem of evil, that it was an actual um, contradiction, that the proposition God exists and the proposition evil exists was somehow logically contradictory. And in Alvin Plantinga, in his book, 1976, God, Freedom, and Evil, came along and really knocked that out of the park. And that's that's a dead debate. So people will use more uh, inductive arguments now. And have to use more of a probability argument, right? Uh, but I just say that to say, um, yeah, you know, God's existence could be disproven if uh, one could show that there are characteristics that are logically contradictory. Logical contradictions cannot be true. Even God himself cannot make logical contradictions true. And so that's one of the one of the reasons I think that atheists uh, try and define the definition. And really, at, at the end of the day, they just hold to more of a weak agnosticism. Uh, but you know, some of them don't. Some of them just they, they don't want to believe. You know, Turek uh, from CrossExamine.org. You heard his uh, commercial a little earlier. With the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist seminar, and again, that's a book I highly recommend if you don't have uh, to get that. He says he'll often ask uh, you know people when he goes to the universities and he does these seminars and. We'll talk to the college students, and they'll ask him, well, if, if if it could be demonstrated to you, if you could know with certainty that the Christian God exists, would you worship him? And many of them say, no, I wouldn't. Would you believe him? No, I wouldn't. So even if it's shown to you to be true, you still wouldn't believe. I mean, that's not rational. That's not a rational position to hold. So again, like we say, a lot of this is not about evidence, folks. Uh, there's times it is, and apologetics is important because it can remove these stumbling blocks that often get in the way uh, to people. It's, a lot of times it's just a it's a it's a smokescreen uh, that people will use intellectual objections uh, to to really just kind of keep the gospel at bay. I want to read this quote. Uh, from Mark Endeavor. Mark Endeavor is a nine marks pastor, uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. And uh, let's see. So he says this in his book on uh, evangelism. Yeah, he says, uh, people mistake apologetics for evangelism. Like the activities we've considered above, apologetics itself is a good thing. We are instructed by Peter to be ready to give a reason for a hope that we have. Within us, First Peter three fifteen, and apologetics is doing exactly that. Apologetics is answering questions and objections people may have about God or Christ, or about the Bible or the message of the gospel. Apologists for Christianity argue for its truth, 
They maintain that Christianity better explains that sense of longing that all people seem to have. Christianity better explains human rationality. It fits better with order. They may argue, as C.S. Lewis does in Mere Christianity, that it is that it that it better fits with the moral sense that people have innately have uh, innately have. It copes better with problems of alienation and anxiety. Uh, Christians may uh, and should argue that Christian Christianity's frankness about death and morality commends it. These can be good arguments to have. Answering questions and defending parts of the good news may often be a part of conversations Christians have with non-Christians. And while that may have been a part of our reading or thinking or uh, talking as we came to Christ, such activity is not evangelism. Apologetics can present wonderful opportunities for evangelism. Being willing to engage in conversations about where we came from or what's wrong with this world can be a significant way to introduce honest discussions about the gospel. And so, you know, what you see here is, uh, you know, apologetics and evangelism are not the same things. Um, They are different tasks, um, but they're both important tasks. So I view apologetics in a lot of ways as a pre-evangelism. It's a way to move the objections, so to speak, out of the out of the way so that they can see the truth of the gospel. Now, people will say, well, you, you can't argue anyone into the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, we have to be loving. We have to be caring. Uh, you can't argue people into the kingdom. You have to love them. And while it's true, and I would certainly agree, and I don't know any apologist who would disagree, that you cannot, you cannot argue someone into the kingdom. It is also true that you cannot love someone into the kingdom. It is also true you cannot love someone into the kingdom. What you need is God the Holy Spirit. Arguments apart from God the Holy Spirit will not work. Love, apart from the Holy Spirit, will not work. I think God can and use, does use both. We need to be loving, right? But we also need to be reasonable. We need to be rational. We don't want a bunch of people with empty heads that are coming to the Christian faith and don't know what they believe and don't know why they believe it. Because what happens is, They will come to a time where they will be tested severely. Whether it's a family member die, whether it's a friend die, uh, regardless. And the faith has to be able to stand. Got to be able to stand. And if all they have is an emotional experience, and that's all they know about God, they're not going to be able to, to last. And that's why we need to ha- need to be able to, to have a good grounding in theology and apologetics. Because, folks, this is the deal. Our hearts are, are, are wicked. We doubt. You know, the, the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I remember it was 2011. I just came down with the swine flu, as I was talking a little bit earlier. I was in seminary, uh, training to be a pastor. 
and here I am in the emergency room. I can't breathe. My lungs have both filled up with fluid, and there's a good chance I might die. And they're getting ready basically to take me to the back and intubate me, uh, and I'm going to be in a coma for the next 27 days. I take my wife out of the room. My wife is crying. She's upset. She doesn't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. And then the doubts start coming. How do I know that what I believe is true? I could die in a matter of minutes here, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. How do I know? I haven't just believed this stuff because it's what I was taught. It makes me feel happy. Well, I started running these apologetic arguments through my mind and through my head. And what happened was I saw that it was true. I reasoned myself back to being rational. What happened was my heart deceived me, and I started being rational. I started, um, you know, having... Thoughts of, well, what if it's not true? What if the Bible's not true? What if God doesn't really exist? What if, you know, well, look, you're being irrational. You know God exists because God's a necessary being. You know this through simple arguments. You know the Bible's the word of God because it's reliable, because it has over 6,000 documents, because it's, uh, you know, translated uh, earlier earlier attestation. How do you say that word? Earlier attestation. Nation, but other words, there's good reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. It's not just my, you know, a wish that makes me happy. There are good reasons to think these things are true. And when I did that, and when I was able to think through those arguments, they comforted me greatly. I'll be putting out a article this week on our blog, Rational Christie Winthrop. And uh, talking about the practical purposes of apologetics that they have in their lives. Um, people think a lot of times it's just something for eggheads. It's not, folks. It's something that all Christians should do. And as we close our series here on worldviews, part of having a, a healthy worldview is having good Christian theology as well as sound apologetics. Because we're compelled to love our neighbor. We're told to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Friends, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we don't just affirm them in their false worldviews and their false thinking. We love them enough to try and give them the gospel. And we live in a day, we live in an age today, where the Bible's not respected. The Bible's not looked upon as the word of God. And simply telling them to believe because the Bible claims to be the word of God is intellectual laziness. We don't take that argumentation from uh, Mormons, you know. I lived in Utah for 20-something years growing up, and I'm telling you, uh, you know, if a Mormon comes and said, hey, you should be a Mormon, why? Well, because the Book of Mormon says you should be a Mormon. Why should I believe the Book of Mormon is the Word of God? Well, the Book of Mormon claims to be the Word of God. We wouldn't take that we wouldn't accept that as a valid reason. We would think, ah, oh, that's circular. That's that's terrible reasons. But yet somehow we think other people should should believe the same line of reasoning from us. No, folks. There's good reasons to believe the Bible. I believe the Bible because there's manuscript evidence. I believe the Bible because there's archaeological evidence. I believe the Bible because there's fulfilled prophecy. 
The scientific evidence confirms it. I believe the Bible because Jesus claimed it was the word of God and Jesus demonstrated that he was God by rising from the dead on the third day. So, uh, as I say, truth matters, theology matters, world views matter. I hope this series has helped. I really hope it has. Um, you know, we do the show for free. We don't get paid to do the show. We're not making money off of it. Our guests that come on here, they come on for free. Uh, they believe theology matters. They believe truth matters. They believe that uh, there is an eternity. And so, you know, we want to see people come to Christ. So I want to thank you again for listening tonight. We will be back next week, God willing, with another episode. And stay tuned. Go to our Facebook page, and you can like us there. And uh, we will continue to produce shows. We'll continue to talk about some of these important theological issues. So thanks for tuning in, and we will see you guys next week. God bless. Thank you.